Casinos in Space by Howard Berenbaum. Copyright 2019 by Howard Berenbaum slash CyberTimes LLC. All rights reserved. Chapter 23. In Search of Paul Erickson, Part 2. There is a conventional backup propulsion system. In fact, we use it for docking. So if the software detects any malfunctions in the space-time drive, minor or potentially disastrous, like a one-way course through a black hole, it disengages and you're back to hydrogen jet propulsion. And this has never happened, thank God. Maybe in retrospect, we should have informed the ship captains, and when we return, I'll suggest that to the military board. But you've never had a problem until now. And this wasn't in any way a malfunction. More like sabotage or just a simple vehicle theft, I will admit, but on a larger scale. I will second that, Mark added. Captain West looked concerned and skeptical, but he nodded his understanding. Now, if I can convince the board to release this information, it will not change the way you pilot your ship. You won't be handed the dummy's guide to space-time propulsion by Dr. Barry Cohen at the Hollow Exchange. Would be intriguing if I could harness that power, Captain West said. Yes, very tempting, Mark said. You'd have a ball until you and your crew ended up way back in the past and dead in the center of an active volcano on one of Jupiter's moons. A miscalculation can be lethal. Wouldn't want that, now would we, Captain West said. When we first developed the technology, Barry said, we did get in into some trouble a few times. He thought of the jump they made to a tomb in ancient Egypt and almost got buried alive. Paul had saved them that time. Then he thought, we're going to find him, damn it. His expression revealed his concern. What's the problem now, Barry? Mark asked. Nothing. I was just thinking about finding Paul, and I hope he's not dead. Well, thank you for the briefing, gentlemen, Captain West said. If you have nothing else to add, let's get the team back and go over this ship from head to toe. Mark acknowledged the request and headed toward the hatch. Captain West looked Barry in the eyes and said, So you say Dr. Erickson was here, good news for all. But could he have piloted the shuttle alone, as you have suggested? I am not convinced he was on his own in this endeavor. I will admit it's possible he wasn't alone, Barry said. But I am fairly confident he could have manned the shuttle on his own. He's very familiar with the controls, undocumented or otherwise. Could it have been Martin Landry? Asked Captain West. I am very sure it wasn't Martin. Though he was obsessed with Paul, and obviously was stalking him, Martin left the Las Vegas when we docked. Remember, we have him in a video entering a shuttle to Vega 1, so he couldn't have been with Paul. Oh, yes, that's true. I do now recall. This is very difficult. Barry looked up to see Mark and the rest of the search team enter the ship. Mark had briefed them and they were starting to comb the shuttle inch by inch. About a half hour later they reported to Captain West. With nothing to go on, except for a green sweater worn by Dr. Erickson, Captain West said, I have to conclude he was on his own. Unbelievable. He turned to Barry and said, does he have that capability? Yes, he does, Barry replied. He's a tough cookie. He's been through a lot, 
especially that major breakdown after his brother, Daniel, died. We had to convince him to come with us, and now I'm sure it was the wrong decision. He doesn't even know his wife is dead, and it's going to be one sad explanation when and if we find him. By the way, we found that the guidance system was set to Vega 1, and it departed the Las Vegas at 23.42 ship time, late evening three days ago. The passenger manifest was blank. I hope we find that bastard Martin Landry, said Captain West. I would personally like to be the judge and executioner after we try him for his crimes. He has a few deaths on his hands. First ever on my ship, and I hope the last. It's good that Paul left that ugly-ass sweater, Mark said, otherwise we'd never know who flew this thing. Barry looked away from the control console and said, I kind of like that color. Yes, it is great he left us that clue, intentional or not. Oh, by the way, it says it landed two hours later, in the early morning. Mark wasn't surprised. One day before our arrival. He knew what he was doing. I hope Paul's alive, he thought. That makes no sense at all, Barry said. Yes, he knows how to fly this bucket. But why on earth would he want to, and leave his wife, Jane? It's way too illogical, Spock. I like your Star Trek reference, Mark said and then started laughing. Unless he was with his imaginary friend, Harvey, the gambling ghost pet. Good one, Barry said. Now that is one of your funniest comments to date. But Paul did say he befriended a gambler guy. Maybe he left with him. Still doesn't make any sense. Right, that's not like Paul at all, Mark said. One by one the team exited the hatch and began to collect their gear to move on into the jungle. As Captain West secured the shuttlecraft, Barry stowed the green sweater in his backpack and said, Maybe he'll need this later. Sorry, Dr. Cohen, the captain said as Barry zipped his backpack, backpack. But, we'll need that for evidence. The suns were high in the sky when the party reached the edge of the clearing. Mark and Barry turned back to see rays of bright yellow and pale orange reflecting from the shuttle's shiny surfaces spiking in every direction like the crown on the Statue of Liberty in New York Harbor. From where they stood, it appeared to be a miniature model of its functional form, waiting silently for some child to sweep it up and play. Before they left the clearing, Captain West said, when we return, we will send the shuttle back to the Las Vegas. They left the shuttlecraft behind them and one by one pierced the bordering bushes and entered into the canopy-covered jungle. The temperature dropped at least 10 degrees, but the humidity climbed considerably. On entering, Mark felt the moisture quickly build up on his forehead and then drip down his cheeks, eventually reaching his mouth imparting a salty sea taste. They assembled at the base of a fallen tree and started planning their path. Captain West spoke. Any ideas, Dr. Cohen? Which way do we go? West, Barry responded. He pointed to a narrow path moving upward at a steep angle, and at the top, the peaks of green and red mountains were visible. It would be a climb from the sea and sand to the hills and mountains of Vega 1, but they were prepared. Mark and Barry were last to ascend, after an hour of steady hiking, just minutes behind the rest, and both were out of breath, but Mark panting more than Barry. When they turned to view the terrain, 
Barry had to catch his breath again because the view was spectacular. From their vantage point, they could see the boardwalk directly east, bordering the salty sea, with multicolored laser-like reflections from the afternoon suns. To the northwest, they could see, in full view, the meandering trail through lush jungle flora, out into small green gra grassy meadows, then up and down through a dense forest. The distant mountains looked like quite a challenging trek, though they appeared somewhat closer on a second glance. Much closer after one member got out a small laser rangefinder and started ranging. Those tall peaks are just six miles as the bird flies, he said. After a short rest, they moved down and around until they reached a small plateau, about a mile from the top and about 100 yards off the trail, where they decided to set up camp. They were in a small shaded opening surrounded by low-growing large-leaved bushes and slightly larger dwarf trees bearing small yellow seed pods that may yield edible meats. But that would be determined later, after some rudimentary testing. Once their tent was pitched, Barry sat down and rested, eyes closed almost in a meditative stance, legs crossed and arms folded. He hadn't planned on chanting Om, but he did automatically while taking a needed rest. After about five minutes without any conscious humming in his mind, his homemade mantra entered his consciousness anyway. And Om was what he heard. Suddenly he was drifting in and out of a deep sleep. He never felt better. When he opened his eyes, it was dark and he wasn't at the camp, so he quickly shut them. How could that be, he thought. It wasn't much past noon, and it couldn't be dark out unless the planet was in the midst of an eclipse. He opened his eyes again slowly, and he was in the dark. Shifting his head from left to right, he saw no one, except he could make out what looked like walls. Captain West looked to Barry for direction, eyebrows raised. So? Barry heard the captain and opened his eyes, but was surprised it was light again. He gazed to the west and pointed saying, West is the way to go. I think he's in a cave somewhere between here and the peaks. That's a lot of ground to cover, but we'll cover it. Do you have a clear landmark in mind? Correction, do you have any landmark landmark in your mind's eye? Barry looked to Mark for help, and Mark said, Don't look at me. I thought I was the psychic, but apparently you're the psychic one. Barry turned back and said, Guess we'll need to wait until something comes to me. It was the right decision to set up camp on the early side of the afternoon rather than later. They had a chance to rest from their long day and also evaluate the data extracted from the shuttlecraft to try to pin down where Dr. Erickson may have headed. Though they had good intentions, they had no idea that the information gleaned from the shuttlecraft computer would help one bit. Paul had left the shuttlecraft days ago with Slim Brody and had been in and out of captivity by the locals, insect and humanoid. All they would find was one set of footprints leading from the shuttlecraft to the boardwalk. No more clues. They hadn't set up camp soon enough when the rains began. The last stakes were hammered into the ground as lightning smacked at a nearby tree with a loud thunder crack. Then seconds later, the tree fell to the ground with a sustained cracking sound followed by a subdued thump. The broken tree was on fire almost 50 yards north of their camp, which was just luck. Maybe if they were on a streak, they'd get lucky and locate Paul. But they were still at risk because thunder persisted and lightning strikes continued with hard downpours of rain, 
often accompanied by hail the size of little league softballs. One hit on the noggin and you'd be done, out of commission for a while. The sky was dark as night except when the lightning flashed, momentarily illuminating their camp. Tents looked like teepees pointing at the treetops. Then the temperature dropped to a chilly 35 degrees and the liquid showers transformed into frozen droplets which adhered to everything, turning the scene into a winter wonderland only viewable when a lightning bolt struck the ground. The captain then ordered two of his men to build a fire pit, and Mark and Barry, now freezing, joined to help gather wood. In just a few minutes, the pile of wood transformed into a small roaring flame shooting flakes of black embers upward with a snap, crackle and pop. As the flame's intensity grew, it illuminated a small green and blue shrub, its shadow moving with the rhythm of the flickering orange-yellow light. Standing near the flame, they were comforted by the warmth radiating from the now-roaring inferno. Mark backed away when the flames, moved by a gust of wind, singed the top of the bush setting it ablaze like a birthday cake with one thousand candles gone wrong. Seconds later, the bush, thought to be anchored to the ground, shot up into the sky and then floated down like a hot air balloon and rested yards away. That's odd, Barry said. I've never seen a flying burning bush. Ditto, Mark said. Well, I've never seen any burning bush, stationary, in transit or even biblical. How the hell did that happen? Apparently, the bush has a mind of its own for self-preservation, Barry said with a laugh. Now, it could be a spiritual thing. He thought for a moment. Nah, there's nothing spiritual here. At least I don't believe in that stuff. Curiosity prevailed, so they walked over to where the bush had landed, and they were amazed to see it was solidly rooted into the ground. Mark moved his hand toward the top branches and tugged at it to verify that it was firmly planted. At the moment he released his grip, a branch shot out of the center and captured Mark's arm. Then a second later, the plant grew a gruesome-looking wide-open mouth with sharp shark-like teeth and lurched for Mark's head. Barry had been watching in amazement and with some quick reflex reaction, kicked at the menacing jaw knocking it away just inches from Mark's vulnerable head. The head was only deterred for a moment and then chomped again at Mark, but Barry was in good form and sent a second kick that broke the plant head's neck. It drooped and then fell to the ground, teeth first, sticking into the soil like a dart the size of a human head, but in this case it was not human. Then without warning, several bushes rained down on their campsite and they sprouted more gruesome heads of various shapes with similar chomping teeth. About ten in all surrounded their small safe zone. One at a time, the heads grew up and out the top of each bush. Then thorny wooden spikes for arms grew out of each of the cheeks, and below each chin grew taller thorny spikes for legs. Now, ten gruesome heads with twenty spiky arms and twenty tall spiky legs left their birth bush and headed towards the tents. Mark and Barry stood still in fear and amazement while the plants transformed into walking weapons. One of the spiked heads spotted Mark and Barry just observing the evolving scene and headed full speed toward them. Barry paused for a moment to get his wallet and quickly removed his thin credit card laser. His timing was just right because when the running spiked head reached them he had the business end of his weapon pointed right at it. It. He then pressed the fire button and the head exploded and the spiked legs and arms fell harmlessly to their feet. 
Then a second spiked head approached, but Barry had it in his sights and fired. It started melting, and then burst into flames, seconds later it was black as burnt toast, but the legs were still in motion. One more blast and the headless creature was disabled. What's causing that smell? Mark asked. It smells like a dead skunk. Barry moved closer to the two dead plants and sniffed. You're sort of right. To me it smells like the drug of choice among teens. This planet is a drug dealer's paradise. The head had an uncanny resemblance to Mark, with the sometimes annoying smirk and light brown pompadour, except it had a greenish tint. Do you smell marijuana? Mark asked. With a pinch of skunk to boot, Barry said. And that face looks like you, Mark. Quite an honor. Not really, Mark said. That is weird. Then three more of the plant heads started converging on the tents, each resembling a crazed Mark Simonson. He drew his laser weapon and fired. Okay, now I am detecting the smell of marijuana. Maybe we should stake a claim here on Vega 1. Not worth it, Barry said. Marijuana is no longer the drug of choice. So, let's not waste any time and burn the rest of the plants right now, before they bite everyone to death. Okay, Mark said. But are you sure it's not a hallucination? I'm not completely sure, Barry said. But, I think it's real. We can verify that with the group. By now the whining of their laser weapons caught the attention of some of the team members, and a few human heads were peeking out of their tents. Captain West was the first to appear. What's all the commotion? The captain asked. Sounds like you're killing cats. Barry was first to respond. Not cats here, Captain West. But if you look around you'll see those bushes. They were trying to eat us for dinner, and they were also going to raid the tents. We stopped them. Then, from a distance another spiked head started toward the tent. Barry still had his laser in hand and shot the approaching plant head right between the eyes and it fell to the captain's feet. I see what you mean, Dr. Cohen, he said looking down at the lifeless plant. That thing could rip an arm off if you're not paying attention. Or a head or two, Mark added. Thanks for verifying that. We thought we might be dreaming. Captain West looked down and examined the partially burnt dead head. It was still smoking from the laser fire. No, it's real. And it has a specific familiar odor, but I just can't place it right now. Smells like skunky marijuana, Mark said. Yes, that's it, Captain West agreed. Or a Goodyear tire on fire. Mark liked the smell of the plant, and had an idea. He pulled two large green leaves from the back the head of his plant head double and started rolling it into what looked like a long green cigar. When it seemed to hold its shape, he headed to the campfire for a light. He was puffing on the green thing as he approached Barry. Want a toke, Mark? He asked. I am starting to feel real good. Thanks, but no thanks friend, Barry said. I'm not sure it's safe. Just because it smells a little like marijuana, doesn't mean it is. I wouldn't do it. And besides, if it is like marijuana, I grew out of that stage years ago, haven't you? I don't want to take the risk.
I respect that, Mark said acknowledging Barry's concerns, but continued puffing anyway generating light green smoke that hovered above their heads. He wasn't too worried. It was only a plant and he wasn't eating it. Barry accidentally inhaled some of the lingering smoke cloud and coughed. Then a few minutes later he said, Okay, I think I feel something, not that I want to. Maybe it is the Vega 1 version of cannabis. I do feel a little more relaxed. Mark smiled. Yes, I'm feeling real good, my man. You sure you don't want a toke or two? Barry didn't hesitate. No, thanks, I think I've had enough. Before Mark and Barry settled in their assigned tent, Mark stopped to pick more green leaves from the head that resembled him. Barry crawled in first followed by Mark with a handful of Vega 1 marijuana. As soon as his head hit his sleeping bag, Mark was sound asleep, but snoring loud enough to wake the dead. Barry finally succumbed to a deep rejuvenating sleep, ignoring Mark's snoring. He was used to Elena's room rattling sound effects, and after twenty-plus years of marriage, it hardly bothered him. Not quite music to his ears, but monotonous enough to resemble a mantra that sent him into a deep meditative state with very vivid dreams. He had been searching a dark and damp cave for hours, exploring every branch, nook and cranny. He was starting to get discouraged, and but then heard a voice say, Howdy bro. Just be patient and you'll find him. Then miraculously he found Paul in a dark corner, curled up in a fetal position. As he approached, Paul must have sensed him, and turned to offer three hands filled with his favorite foods, a slab of cherry-basted St. Louis-style fall-off-the-bone pork ribs, spaghetti with pork meatballs and lastly, a Sanders hot fudge cream puff sundae with chocolate ice cream, a brand of hot fudge and ice cream originating in Michigan. Everything he loved to eat at home. The thought made him cry, and he wept green-colored tears. After his short emotional outburst, he grabbed for the slab of ribs because he was very hungry. As he pulled the meat from Paul's plate-sized hand, it started falling to the ground. But, Barry couldn't lose the food, and quickly dove for it, reaching the falling pig ribs before it hit the dirt. He shoved the pile of cherry-flavored meat into his mouth, and it was so good. But before he could enjoy a second bite, he heard retching sounds and awoke from his meditative sleep, now saddened to think he hadn't eaten a thing. He should have taken the dreamy hot fudge sundae first. And he was still very hungry, which was unusual because he often skipped breakfast. In fact, at times he could skip the whole day of food, and it never bothered him. It actually helped his appetite when his dinner was also his breakfast and lunch. Only conclusion is that his change in appetite was from Mark's secondhand smoke. He then stood up still feeling drowsy, very hungry and disappointed that he hadn't eaten a thing. He looked around, but Mark wasn't there. Then he heard the retching sound again coming from outside. He exited the tent and found Mark bent over and vomiting green. So, I thought I warned you. But for someone with a genius IQ, I think you may have made the wrong decision. Sometimes I think you lack a little common sense, and today, unfortunately, I was right. You just don't eat anything on an alien planet unless you're sure it's safe. I get your point, and I didn't eat the plant, Mark said somewhat annoyed. But I'd rather not ponder on it while I'm violently ill. 
On a positive note, I'm not dead, and had some real vivid dreams. Though, I do hate to admit when you were right. Not dead yet, Barry said with a laugh. I'm glad about that. And I did sleep well from your second-hand smoke, without vomiting green mint gelatin. It did look like that, didn't it, he acknowledged. Not fun. But, I did have a vivid dream that my grandmother walked out of the tent and then I followed her, only to vomit again. Fortunately, you'll live to continue our mission tomorrow, Barry added.